What would you do if you could do anything? Welcome back to The Purpose Effect. I'm Elena. That's how you start. You start by sharing your own story. What connects you to this story? Because you'll notice that suddenly other people are like, yeah, yeah, I, I feel that too. I, I had something similar too. And then when you've revealed your side of your story, you ask other people, what is your story? That's how you start connecting people. So I realized actually too much of my identity had been wrapped up with external factors. So I was like, that's, that's fundamental, which is to figure out who you are without all the wrapping, the gift wrapping. Shoshati Basu is a journalist, activist, and the host of How to Be, a podcast about what it means to be human. Shoshati started How to Be in 2020, in the middle of the pandemic, partly to overcome her paralyzing fear of public speaking, but also as a way to navigate her own mental and physical health struggles. In doing so, she shows us all the importance of being a human being, not a human doing. We talk about creating connection through storytelling and that sharing your own story is often where activism begins. We also talk about the fact that the more we speak to people of diverse backgrounds and experience, the more we realize that we are far more similar to one another than we think. If you believe in the power of storytelling and that diversity of thought and experience is essential to solving some of today's biggest challenges, then this episode is for you. We kick things off by talking about how Shashati first started using activism to tell stories and inspire change. So when I was really young, I was always involved in something or other, either through school or something. So I remember as a child, I'd be working on sort of um, helping younger kids read or doing things like climate change activism even because no one really understood it at that point. So it was a really sort of basic version of what we see now, which is obviously far more advanced. And then it just basically rolled into really sort of personal topics. So, you know, uh, looking at sort of domestic violence against women. So I was 18, uh, working full on on uh, domestic violence against women, um, just uh, doing lots of campaigning. And the thing is, I never really wanted to be in the limelight ever. Um, I just sort of wanted to do this because it, it really was very personal to me. You know, I've had to sort of go through a lot of these things myself. And so it was very personal. But because I was so young and I was a woman of color and, you know, so it was more rare to see someone like me doing it whilst so in the feminist movement in the UK is widely sort of middle class white and um, and usually a much older population, um, so usually 40 and above, um, especially at that time, so around 2006. And um, so no one was talking about feminism. So when I went into university, they were like, you're some kind of weird alien uh, talking about these things, doing activism for this. I was like, who the hell cares about this? And I was just like, but it meant a lot to me. So first thing I did was like, I joined the Women's Society at university um, and, you know, I became president of the university's Women's Society. And then we started up a network of all women's societies across the universities across the UK. And we campaigned on like major issues. Like, for example, one thing we found was like external businesses were coming into the campus and trying to recruit 
uh, young female students into beauty pageants. And we were very, very vehemently opposed to this. And we're like, of course, a woman's allowed to, you know, to choose and things like that. But it was the fact that, you know, they were clearly targeting um, uh, young women like that. And I was like, this is a place of education. You know, everyone has studied really hard to get to this point. And, you know, how do you reduce people down immediately as soon as they come into university into this role? So this was a huge campaign. So this went right across the board and it became a national campaign. And uh, so we stopped it from happening and it got banned. You know, and it was just such a passion of me and my fellow sort of students in the group. And we just continued for years and years in different shapes of form. So I was part of the London Feminist Network, Million Women Rise, where we'd like uh, organise our 8,000 women to protest in um, central London, um, reclaim the night every year. Um, so, you know, it was like a huge deal for me, especially at that time of my life. So it just changed into journalism because journalism was always kind of in the background. As a kid, I was just like, I want to be a journalist one day because I want to give a platform to people. Activism was like a natural way to sort of segue into journalism. Um, so that's the kind of stuff I started writing about. I was writing about women, uh, widows, Indian widows, the mistreatment of Indian widows. Um, it is absolutely horrendous. So, you know, I contacted the uh, chairperson of the Women's Commission in India and we had long chat about, you know, basically the, the very serious situation because basically widows in India in certain parts of society are basically just left to wither uh, and die after, after they've uh, lost their husband. And they're treated like untouchable sort of people, which is obviously another issue in itself. And so it was a very, very important sus like subject for me to bring up as, you know, one of the first sort of big articles I started writing about. And it kind of just continued in that vein. I was always doing something when I was in China. I was um, investigating sort of prostitution in Beijing. And, um, you know, it was always this, that vein of writing. So gender-based violence. Um, so it was... Um, yeah, so it was just sort of a natural segue to go into journalism. And then, obviously, I moved out of journalism for a while. And, you know, I really missed sort of the the interaction with people because that's kind of what you do. You know, you, you communicate. It's such an important part of journalism. And I really missed it. So, you know, the podcast sort of came about from so many different kind of strains of thought, uh, which was... One, I want to do more activism again. Two, I want to speak to people again. And three, I need to improve my public speaking because I am absolutely petrified of public speaking. So I was just like, this is going to be like trying to solve so many different things in one go. So it was almost like aversion therapy. It just forced me into doing the worst thing possible. And it, the first time I did it, oh my God, it was horrendous. Like, I would hyperventilate every sentence. So um, I would just stop. I would record literally one, one sentence at a time. So it took forever. I stitched it all together. But, you know, after a while, I realized like the more I was doing it, the better it was getting. And I was reading out bigger chunks. But more than that, it was like an exploration into so much more subjects. Um, 
what started off as like, oh, just confidence, perseverance, resilience. Then I realized actually, you know, all these subjects are so intersectional. Um, you know, it's so much bigger than just, okay, I, I'm lacking confidence, but it's also like, is it because there is a societal issue that's causing these problems? Which is why I sort of started delving more into the kind of societal subjects where, you know, I did look at individuality within society. What is it like to be different? Um, what is it like to be someone who has so many different identities? Um, things like that. How do you deal with the fact that you're always, if you have several identities, that you're always sort of the gatekeeper of having to always talk about it, that also affects your mental psyche. So it just kind of formed lots of different subjects without even realizing it. And obviously reading lots of books is just very helpful. So yeah, um, it really was a natural segue, you could say. You've said so many things there that are really fascinating and I want to talk to in more detail, but what you've just said there about the multiple identities... Can we just talk about that a little bit more? Because that's something that I uh, relate to. I am half Malaysian and half Kiwi, and I grew up moving around Southeast Asia. And I look ethnically ambiguous, I guess. People can never really place me. Um, So I always feel like I'm trying to explain my identity because if I say I'm from New Zealand, people are confused because I don't sound like I am. If I say I'm Malaysian, people are confused because I don't look like I am. As a British Asian, I'm sure you have that same issue, right? Because people are Mm. always wanting to know where are you from? When did you or your parents or your family immigrate (laughs) there? Yeah, how British are you really? Yeah. Uh, and then you talk a lot about disability as well, which is another identity. And you've met, you know, feminist identity, gender identity, all of these different identities, which must come up a lot in your work, particularly in your activism work. But also people always want to explain your work from the position of your identity, you know, mm. that your your perspective is different or unique or needs to be couched in terms of the fact that you are not the the status quo identity you're not a 44 year old white woman feminist activist in in the UK indeed indeed um exactly that and so you know exactly what it's like in terms of having to always explain and just it it can can be quite uh tedious uh at times isn't it you know I think one thing we we always forget is that we are part of the global majority being a woman of color, we are part of the global majority. So it's quite interesting when you are sort of like then labeled like, oh, actually, wait, aren't you a minority? It's like, no, <laughs> no, actually, I'm not. Yeah. Um, you're the minority. <laughs> uh, so that that's always quite an interesting sort of like, I, I found that seemed to be the the approach I started to take, which was like, we need to start thinking more globally again, which is the fact that actually you know we are connected we're all connected in some shape or form to you know like like right now you know we are contacting each other from right across the world um and you know and obviously technology has made things so much easier to do that which is fantastic but then actually so when people make those kind of assumptions and make those comments they're they're obviously not connecting with a wider public 
Um, and I think that's where, you know, that's where the education needs to be. Talking to people who are different than you, very important. Because, you know, there are some minds we might never be able to change, but we might be able to plant a seed, um, which obviously is a start. Now, obviously, we live in a time where it's extremely polarized. Yeah. Um, all debates are based on bandwagons, um, which is really problematic because you can't have a simple conversation anymore, uh, which is a real problem. The, the art of debate has gone. Um, and so I think that's where we need to start coming back together again and realizing, yes, we may disagree on lots of points, but actually there is a common ground somewhere. And, and I think there needs to be actual sort of sort of new forms of social media where people come together and just talk more like this, which is like, actually, um, I want to meet someone completely different today and let me have a conversation with them. And they just match people continuously with opposites. On difference. Yeah, that would be very interesting rather than on similarities so that you just create yeah. this echo chamber um, where you're exactly. just being fed the same viewpoints as yourself over and over and you begin to think that that's normal. Exactly. Yeah. And it can happen. And, you know, when we live in such a sort of uh, isolationist society, and especially, you know, in the UK, in the places like the US, it's very common to have a very individualist kind of attitude towards things. And um, actually, you know, these kind of people end up living in an echo chamber. And it, it and it's sort of like, it's understandable in a way. It's just like, you know, a lot of people will be alone, feeling quite lonely, will be sit there, sitting there watching TV all day. And the TV that they're watching is just basically feeding back information that they maybe just sort of go, oh, yes, yeah, that must be correct. And um, and they've got no one to talk to. So that's that's a problem. The the other thing you mentioned earlier is how personally important your activism was, um, and particularly issues around gender violence. You've also talked about how you come from a tank load of trauma. And yeah. I wanted to know if we could talk about that and how that has informed maybe some of your activism work. Yeah, I'm like I'm not going to touch on specifics. Also, just because it will be triggering okay. for some people as well. But um, just yeah, it was a pretty unconventional childhood to say the least. Um, I was surviving pretty much day to day. It was um, I was told basically by doctors I'd be dead by twenty. Um, the way things were going in my life, like things had just were just so terrible, um, and it was. Um, yeah, just by sheer miracle and sheer willpower, sort of got through very, very, very serious trauma. And um, and it just spurred me. It spurred me into sort of action. How can I change this? That, yeah. that was my sort of my main thing. It was hard for many years, many, many years. Um, and, you know, it just getting my health back on track took a long, long time. It was enough to be like, okay, I need to now help other people. And service, service is such a massive part of my life and it, I think should be part of everyone's life. Um, being able to give back to others, um, just it is, you know, in a way selfish, but it is just such an important thing. I, be, I believe the world would be a lot a better place if everyone could just sort of help each other. So, yeah. Why do you think of service as selfish? 
Because it's healing? Ah, yeah, because uh, I, I think because it can be sort of self-serving, you could say. Uh, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, um, you know. Uh, and I think selfish, the word selfish gets bandied about a lot, um, especially when you, you're thinking about self-care and things like that. It is absolutely essential, you know. I always use that, you know, the oxygen mask uh, analogy on the plane, so important, Right. Um, you can't do anything if you don't help yourself first. I, mm-hmm. It was something that I was always told growing up. Um, if, if there's something that you're finding difficult in your own life, uh, one way to make that feel better, this is may- maybe where um, you might be coming from in terms of being selfish, is to help other people. It makes those bad things that you're thinking about your, yourself or the bad situation you're in feel easier to manage because you don't feel alone in it perhaps hundred percent hundred percent so I I see that but I also think that services it's something we all are obligated to do on some level yeah it's neither selfish nor selfless it's it's just part of our experience yeah it's you know we are social beings as humans we are social beings we are meant to connect with one another um you know, and so I, I, you know, I think it is, you're right, as is part of the human condition to reach out to other people and not disconnect. You've also talked a lot about your disability, which was relatively recently diagnosed. Is that right? In your adult mm. life and, yeah. um, and the impact that that has had on yourself, your life, and also your desire to create impact. Um, so can we talk a little bit about that and how that's spurred you on? Like, has that been a big motivating factor in having a podcast that talks about all issues relating to to mental health at a time when, yeah, I guess you're trying to come to terms with what your future is going to look like? Yeah, 100%. Like, it was, you know, the it's so interesting because for me, and I guess a lot of people who went through the pandemic, and especially for people who have a disability, the pandemic was just an extension of what we've already been through because I spent like two years almost like at home, housebound. Um, I spent a year like bedridden from having a disability. So it was just like when the pandemic hit, it wasn't a massive shock, but it was a massive shock to other people. So it was like, okay, but here's a, here's a point where we can help. You know, we've been through this. We have the tools to actually assist. So, you know, like, in 2017, I was first diagnosed with a HMPP, hereditary neuropathy with liability to pressure palsies, as a mouthful. And, uh, and then basically, you know, I degenerated very quickly. Um, and uh, it's form of like MS. Um, that's the closest thing you can probably um, say it is. Uh, but it is extremely rare. So, you know, most doctors haven't heard of it. And um, so it just gave me uh, a chance to maybe raise awareness about it. So first thing I did was create a website. And I went, um, because there was just nothing there. Um, even the information on sort of government websites were incorrect. So, um, you know, I was like, okay, we're going to start rectifying some of this. Because, for example, it's described as a mild condition. It's not a mild condition. Most of us are, like, fully wheelchair-bound it's the, you know, it, it fully affects your life. 
So, you know, I was like, okay, let's, let's change some of the sort of the literature around this. So I started researching, reading lots of science papers. I, you know, I, I joined a group and now I'm one of the moderators of the group, of the HMPP group. And there's like a thousand of us on Facebook just chatting to each other. Um, just being like, oh, have you had that weird symptom before? I was like, yeah, I've, I, I had that. Yeah, don't worry. That's, that seems to be the case. And it, we kind of support each other that way because we don't have that support in the, the medical system because no one's really heard of it or no one's ever really dealt with it. There's like one doctor that is the main researcher in the US. So, and it's quite funny. I've been to the GP before. They've never seen it. They'll Google HMPP and then they'll find my website <laughs> and, recite, and recite it back to me. I'm like, no, if you go to the about page, you might see my face. Then it just kind of, it made me realize from the wider sort of the disability network, um, just sort of the, the lack of opportunities. Um, and also I believe in the social model of disability where the world society has ten, tends to have a, like a box of what is considered normal. And if you don't fit within this box, then basically there is nothing outside of that, nothing available, but you are supposed to conform. So something as simple as, for example, I can't take most public transport because there's stairs, um, but that's not my issue. That's not my fault. That's because they haven't changed that. The social model of disability is about changing society to fit different people uh, and lots of different people because you can be different in so many different ways. Um, and, and I think that's, that's really important. So we need to sort of understand disability from the point of view that we can do anything. Anything is possible. If you give us enough flexibility, if you give us enough adjustments, anything is possible. Um, hence I can, I've managed to create a podcast with like barely functioning arms, um, just from my bed, you know, it's, it's possible. So it's, it just means that you just have to change society's way of thinking about disability so that really is kind of my sort of way of pushing forward and I'm now the trustee of one of the the disability cycling charities as well in the UK so we have uh, completely modified uh, sort of uh, tricycles bicycles anything that anyone can use so you can have a three-wheeler um, and that's the point is that you can still be fit you can still do lots of things you just need to find the adaptations for it. So yes, so it's it's an important part of my life, yes. What do you think about people with disability being held up as inspirations purely for being? I would be interested to talk about that because often people with disabilities are held up as being really inspirational because they've managed to do things that many people do, many able-bodied people do, and yes, it is more difficult and we can all recognize that and we can all celebrate it but um yeah how do you feel about it it just kind of falls under the social model of disability which is the fact that you know why are differences hailed as something like unique or spectacular when a fifth of the world's population is dis disabled you know it, it doesn't make any sense um and it also reduces people with disabilities down to just their productivity and what they can do when simply people just want to be yeah. and, you know, just get on with their lives um, to the best of their ability. But, you know, it just puts this added pressure um, on a lot of people with disabilities to be exceptional, which is just not fair because 
to be fair, you know, this happens with every kind of sort of outside the box kind of um, sort of identity. You, you know what that's like. As a woman, as a person of color, it's the same thing. You know, you have to be exceptional to sort of make it anywhere uh, and get that kind of um, coverage, uh, you could say. And that, I think, is a problem because, you know, it doesn't allow people to just live. And it also doesn't allow society to accept people for what they yeah. are. Um, uh, you know, they don't have to be productive. No one has to be just over, overly productive all the time. Um, it just doesn't make any sense. But yes, unfortunately, I do sort of classify a lot of this kind of inspirational yeah. porn, which is uh, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, under this kind of slightly toxic positivity. Yeah. You know, I didn't connect that with um, the fact that women are also held up to sometimes different standards or they, you know, people are surprised if you see a woman in a boardroom or a woman in a C-level position. And it's always this those women will be contacted to talk about diversity in senior leadership positions because just because they occupy one, not because they are trying to do anything exceptional except live their lives and do their jobs and support their families, but they are always expected to have a position on diversity in senior leadership in the way that men aren't. And probably actually that's where the conversation should start with the the people who are most in the room. So you also recently attended the CSW 66, which for those listening who might not know, the CSW is the UN Commission on the Status of Women. And it's Mm. an organization dedicated to promoting gender equality. And this was the 66th meeting that we've had on the progress that we've made as women, but also some of the challenges that we still face. And I know that one of the topics on the agenda was the changing world of work for women and how this impacts women financially. And I was just wondering what you learned from the sessions and what people were talking about. Yeah, I'm going to give us, you know, I think the pandemic was pretty devastating for women in work. Um, It basically just obliterated a lot of wins we've had for the last few decades um, just went backwards because basically a lot of women lost their jobs or they were forced to take the the caregiving kind of uh, position, uh, especially with children at home, um, which meant, you know, suddenly we've just got a, a dearth of like women workers have just disappeared. And um, so that was a very big concern in the CSW 66 because obviously you know, after all these years of just fighting, and suddenly there's another sort of hurdle to to overcome again. So that was one aspect of many aspects of um, the things that women are having to overcome right now. And it was an extraordinary event overall. Went over two weeks, um, covered absolutely every intersectional subject you could think of, like gender with climate change, uh, women of colour with climate change, what is it like to be trafficked within climate change, what is it like to like deal with uh, monetary issues and things like that. Um, it, you know, we had um, women actually in Ukraine right now being bombed at, we could hear the oh bombs um, go off, and they were still talking about climate change. That's, that was just incredible for us because we were just like, stay safe. <laughs> stay safe but they were just like 
No, because climate change is still important to us. It doesn't matter this is happening, mm -hmm. but one of our concerns is even before the war started, we were having water issues. We were having electricity problems. And now the whole supply is now completely contaminated from all the bombing. And she's like, what is our next step? This should be a sort of a, a holistic approach towards re sort of re, re, renovating Ukraine again um, and rejuvenating re, Ukraine through the eyes of climate change. Um, so it was an extraordinary event um, right across the board. You know, I had women who were trafficked from different parts of the world, even in the US, mm -hmm. uh, speak about their own experiences of being trafficked and how they are in the climate change conversation too. Because basically you suddenly become f far more vulnerable. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't have many rights to begin with. And then when you have things like war, when you have climate change problems like uh, a hurricane happens, what happens to these women? You know, they, they disappear. Um, and so it was such a brilliant event in terms of understanding climate change from such a different perspective, so many different perspectives. Um, listening to the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, talk about, you know, we need to bring women into leadership roles. And he promised, actually, he said, we want to bring the, make the next Secretary General a woman for the first time. So that would be remarkable, I think, because women are championing climate change. They are 70% of the agricultural base of the world. Um, and they are also the most poverty-stricken as a result. So, yeah, the thing is, is that I think on an individual basis, it's so, so important to keep having empathy towards people and to do your bit. And that's that's really important. You know, I was speaking to really young activists at the, the session, which was fantastic. You know, there were really young people who were just starting up, 16, 17 years old. And they're like, we want to do our bit, which I thought was fantastic anyway. So I was like, well done for being here and starting so young. And they're like, what can I do? Like, I feel like I can't do anything as a as an individual. So the next thing you do is then find other people who are like, yeah, I think that's wrong too. And and then what you do is then you form groups. And this is how it starts, how grassroots movement starts. And um, and very quickly, especially with modern technology and it's amazing what people can do, as you've seen with the climate change activists. Have you seen with all these amazing March for Our Lives um, anti-gun lobby in the US? They were all so young. Um, they did their bit. Um, so it, anyone can do something to help, but it just means reaching out, reach out to other people. And how do you do that? Because you're a communicator, you're a journalist, you're a... Uh, a researcher, a podcast host, how do you reach out to people and create communities around a topic, something that you want to inspire change around, but feel like it's difficult to get that message in a way that's A, going to be impactful and B, going to bring people around along with you? What are some of the the storytelling elements that we can use to bring people with us on that journey? Do you know what? Like, I interviewed this amazing uh, young woman called Devi Lockwood who wrote 1001 Stories of Climate Change. So basically she went around the world with a sign around her back on a bicycle across the world 
to various islands, Fiji, to Alaska, to all across the world, just saying, tell me a story about water or tell me a story about climate change. And that's what it is. It's your story. That's how you start. You start by sharing your own story. What connects you to this story? Because you'll notice that suddenly other people are like, yeah, yeah, I, I feel that too. I, I had something similar too. And that's, that's a really sort of powerful way to start. And then when you've revealed your side of your story, you ask other people, what is your story? That's how you start connecting people. Throughout the year, I was creating communities through the mediums that have started opening up to us. So, you know, audio spaces have become fantastic arenas to have conversations with amazing people. So, you know, I, I developed friendships with lots of people on Twitter spaces, on Clubhouse. Um, and basically, I utilize those spaces to have those conversations with people. I'd have a list of questions and I'd just ask people, what's your view? I want to hear what your view is. And just having that chat was enough for people to be like, that was kind of a relief, you know, just to be able to sort of offload that. Or actually, I never really thought about that in that way. Um, and that's how you start sort of engaging, which is you share your st- a bit of your story, but then also ask the other person, what's your story too? So you've worked with Reclaim the Night for many, many years. I did, yes. I think most women can relate to feeling unsafe at night yeah. alone. And that's only been exacerbated by, I know of two high-profile cases in the last year of women being abducted and murdered on the streets of London. There are probably many more. Yes. um, But those were the ones that reached me over here in Malaysia. What struck me was possibly even in the context of the pandemic because um, women who are in risky situations in their homes have had no way to escape their abusers. Um, But the anger the anger that you can't even walk home at night in a city like London, which is apparently one of the most surveyed cities in the world, and feel safe. No. we ha- Yeah, I know exactly which case in particular that came right across the shore, which was the Sarah Everett case. Um, you know, young woman literally just walked past her, you know, it's actually down the road from me. Oh, you wow. Know? Um, yeah, it's down the road from me. So it's like she just walked through a, a park. I mean, it just literally walked home. Five minutes. Gets stopped by a police officer. You know, and that's horrifying. That's horrifying on so many levels. And obviously then we had other high-profile cases like Sabina Nessa, who, you know, was a woman of colour who was attacked and then killed. There's been debate about how she was that that case was actually dealt with anyways but um you know we had a police officer a serving police officer you know accused of doing various other things ahead of this attack um which obviously is a just a just a horrifying notion to think of but we forget that these people are human as well so it doesn't mean suddenly you know they're following the their own rules you know so um yeah, it was a shocking incident because obviously the the aftermath of that was we had that massive uh, Reclaim the Night type protest vigil. And then obviously a lot of women who they've just won their case, actually, they were attacked by the police officers. Whilst protesting against 
safety on the streets of London at the hands of police officers. Yeah. I know. Just beyond, like, beyond belief, honestly. Um, and you can't make these things up sometimes, honestly. Um, it's so, you know, it, there's a, there's a, they realized there was an institutional issue here. There's currently a thorough investigation into the Metropolitan Police, um, which is sort of the major uh, unit of uh, the UK Police Division, where they realized that this was institutional. This was happening right across the board. They had uh, several police officers allegedly um, using WhatsApp, sending absolutely vicious messages of both misogynistic, racist, even sort of rape-related threats, like in these WhatsApp groups. So we have a major problem. This is an institutional problem. That's what I think is really important, is that we continue to fight. We continue to fight, continue to go out on the streets. It's important that we keep putting the pressure uh, on safety for women uh, inside the house and outside the house. Absolutely vital. Yeah. Can I ask, in your activism work with Reclaim the Night, but also other organizations that are trying to talk about improved safety for women, are there a lot of men involved in those conversations? I, it's interesting because I think at the beginning when the movement really started, it, was, um, it wasn't even considered. Um, but as time went on and you had a younger generation of people um, sort of being included within the movement and also just starting up their own sort of conversation, it became a very, very important factor to have men involved in the, the movement because it shouldn't be, the onus shouldn't be on women to sort of change people's behaviour. That's just the simple fact. And also because, you know, toxic masculinity affects men too, you know. It's a, it's a real problem, like right across the board. So that's why we have to change that culture. Um, and we're still really very much at the beginning stages of all of this. In the, it's only been really the last 10 years where, there's more men involved in the sort of the the feminist debate, yeah. um, so it, it, it's still a long way. There's still a long way to go, but I think you know it's good that we're getting more a more collective, intersectional kind of perspective of uh, feminism generally. Yeah. Now it's not just considered a woman's issue, and it's also not just considered like a particular type of woman's issue. Yeah, exactly. It's everyone's issue. It really is. Because do you know what? Actually, uh, the Mayor of London just released a quite powerful advert. I'm not sure you've seen it. It's a sort of a campaign about um, men and boys taking responsibility for their actions. So there is an advert at the moment. There's a campaign where you see this person making really sort of threatening, almost sort of, you know, the typical kind of night out laddish behavior. A young girl is sitting there by herself, clearly quite scared um, and He's just sort of being like, why are you being like this? Why are you being like this? And then could see his friend suddenly have all these thoughts like, this isn't, I don't feel comfortable with this. I don't think this is correct. And you see him have this dialogue in his head. It's like, what should I say? What should I do? And he, he confronts his friend and says, just leave it out. Like, don't, that's just not appropriate sort of thing. And, and that was a great campaign because it was about putting the onus back on men to take responsibility for their friends for for themselves you know to just be like you know be a decent human being basically so that's a brand new campaign that came alongside also the csw 66 
um, from the mayor of London. So, yeah, you can see there's a shift in sort of thinking going on and the, the fact that people are trying to shift that way anyways. Yeah, and that, you know, the mayor of London, who's obviously a man, has been one of the champions of, of this campaign. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So having written, interviewed, and now produced podcasts about all of the things that we struggle with, whether that's trauma, whether that's identity, disability, um, discrimination, what do you, what does it mean to be? Hmm. It's a good question, isn't it? Um, yeah, I think, I think again, it, it's, it comes down to that question of as human beings, we've sort of lost sight a bit of what is our purpose. As you say, like your whole podcast, what is our purpose of being here? Is it to just spend our life working and being productive? Is, is that it? And I think that's what it means to me, which is it's about being a human being and not human doing. And that is the most important thing. It's like, can you sit with yourself? Are you comfortable just sitting with yourself without anything around you? And I think a lot of people really struggle with that these days. They're always needing to sort of look at their phone or needing something, music, something, or, you know, but they can't just sit with themselves. And I think that, that for me is to be, to be happy with yourself no matter where you are, uh, whatever your circumstances, just to have that kind of inner peace. You've mentioned it now a couple of times in this conversation, this relationship between self-worth and productivity. And mm. I think that's such an easy trap to get into it, into. I'm certainly guilty of it myself. Me too. But yeah, maybe if we can, the focus, if the focus is on being um, and that that's enough and that if you can sit with yourself, you know, your thoughts, your actions, the way you communicate with other people, um, if you can sit with yourself and accept all of those things, then, yeah. um, well, that, that's a win. I don't know anyone really who can honestly say that they, they can sit with themselves yeah. in the silence and be totally content with who they are. And, um, yeah, totally. Because I think a lot of people just use all, all the negative kind of aspects of themselves or the, what, what they consider flaws, um, just sort of takes over any of the positive aspects so I think that's that's where we need to sort of start refocusing and shifting the balance so in all of these conversations and also like diving really into our internal minds what is it that connects us across different abilities genders races age groups what is what is it that connects us that makes us human what are the what are the things that we can all tap into and understand? I think, you know, you know, the human condition is strange. If you strip away everything else, it's pretty much the same right across the board. The same problems, the same sort of situations, it's exactly the same. And so I think in that way, we are innately connected. Um, you know, of course, people put on those layers of, oh, yeah, but you're different this way and that way. But actually... No, um, like our sort of basic, our fundamental sort of feelings and things don't change. So, you know, you can be anywhere across the world and be like, I feel like a failure. It doesn't matter where, which part of, you know, whether you're from the upper stratosphere, are you, you're like super rich from the 1% or whether you're, you know, you just don't have anything. 
you still you can still feel like that and so I think that's the human condition is that it's so similar everyone is so similar as people that actually that's what connects us yeah the fact that our experience is actually far more alike than it is different hundred percent hundred percent you know strip away the just sort of the the details it's pretty much the same right across the board we all suffer from some level of trauma growing up in some shape or form that affects us it it can be subjective to people but it's still the same and as a parent that is a terrifying thought that regardless of what I do I'm going to inflict some kind of trauma on my children (laughs) um yeah (laughs) I'm like again part of the human condition is sort of you know we're not perfect and I think that's the main sort of takeaway no one is perfect and that's okay and we actually shouldn't try to be no definitely not definitely not perfection is uh, overrated so I just wanted to finish off with some quick questions um firstly what does purpose mean to you again purpose is to basically be able to sit with yourself is to basically just have a value system that will be enough to sit with yourself so for example if you think trust honesty loyalty are your main values and that is enough to drive you that is your purpose and when you look into the future are you scared or hopeful Hmm, kind of a mix I think um I'm hopeful in terms of you know I've seen some lot of positive you know changes in terms of young people making such a big difference in the world actually I went to um the women of the world festival which is like one of the sort of UK uh feminist festivals you can say um and um they had a really interesting sort of interesting event with the chair and the director of the event of the whole event and you know they did they asked a question out to the audience which is how many people do you think like how many people think that any of this will change for women, like things will get better. And basically only like three or four people had their hand up saying it will get better. And she said, yeah, that that's the, they're they're right there is the problem. She said, if you don't have hope, nothing will change. She said, you've got to still hope no matter, you know, no matter how bleak things look right now, you must still hope because it helps you strive towards it. And I think that's, that's kind of how I feel about sort of the future aspect, which is just keep hoping. And what is the best piece of advice that anyone's ever given you? Oh, so many, (laughs) isn't it? There's so many. Um, Yeah, I think one is always to defend your mental health. I think that was a really important thing to, like, defend it. Um, Because, you know, like, I had a lot of sort of mental health issues growing up, but I think if I had protected myself a bit better, it might have gotten a bit better sooner. Um, um, so that was, that was one thing. So uh, protect your mental health and definitely the, the whole aspect of the podcast, which, you know, the how to be podcast came from someone saying you should be a human being, not a human doing. And, um, and it, it really struck a chord with me because I was just like, I lost sight, you know, of who I was because when, I became bedridden. 
I was like, I have no, what's my identity? What's my purpose? And I was like, I have to find a purpose. Like just sitting here, um, not being able to do anything. And that was the point was that I realized actually too much of my identity had been wrapped up with external factors. So I was like, that's, that's fundamental, which is to figure out who you are without all the wrapping, the gift wrapping. Yeah, I love that. I think that's such an important message and such a beautiful way to articulate it. So thank you so much for your time. I've loved having this chat with you. No, thank We've you. We've talked about so many interesting things. I feel like we could have gone on for ages. Uh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> one of the fun things about podcasting is you get to have really amazing chats that go on for ages yeah. with all kinds of people. Oh, indeed. I just love it. I absolutely love it. So it's so nice to like meet you, honestly. Yes. Likewise. I really, really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We dived into a lot in this episode, but I think the biggest takeaways are these. Firstly, if you want to change anything, start by sharing your own story. Secondly, activism is about showing that whatever the issue, whether it's disability or gender equality, lack of inclusion is bad for all of us. And that includes men and that includes able-bodied people. And when we can position the issue as one that impacts everybody and that change benefits everybody, then we start to move the needle. And storytelling is key to this. And thirdly, and I think most importantly, it's enough to just be. It really is. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate, review, and share it with your friends. And if you're interested in Shashati's work or the How To Be podcast, the links are in the show notes. You'll hear from me again next week. Bye.